3: In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our podcast stuffed full of delicious highlights from the week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. And on your menu this week, Japan's government grapples with its own smoking policy, political road rage hits Zambia, and whether women really do talk more than men. But of course. First, though, the illusion of reform was our cover line this week. For all his appearance as a radical reformer, Narendra Modi, India's Prime Minister, is not quite what he's been cracked up to be,
1: Also, our cover leader argued. When Narendra Modi became Prime Minister of India in 2014, opinion was divided as to whether he was a Hindu zealot disguised as an economic reformer or the other way round. Three years on, the question seems to have been settled. He has pushed through reforms that had stalled for years, including an overhaul of bankruptcy law and the adoption of a Nationwide Sales Tax, or GST, to replace a confusing array of local and national levies. Foreign investment has soared, albeit from a low base. India, cabinet ministers insist is at last becoming the tiger Mr Modi promised. Sadly, as our briefing in this week's issue explores, these appearances are deceitful. The central government's response to a host of pressing economic problems, from the difficulty of buying land to the reform of rigid labour laws, has been to pass them to the states. And at least one of the big reforms it has undertaken... The overnight cancellation of most of India's banknotes in an effort to curb the black economy was counterproductive, hamstringing legitimate businesses without doing much harm to illicit ones. No wonder the economy is starting to drag. Mr Modi is more an administrator than a reformer, we argued. He is more energetic than his predecessor, the stately man Mohan Singh, launching glitzy initiatives on everything from manufacturing to toilet construction. But he has not come up with many big new ideas of his own. Japan's government seems to be struggling
3: with one of its own policies, namely smoking. To light up or not to light up, that is the question. While it brings in a lot of money, it does make people very ill. An article in our Asia section explored the conflicting interests.
0: Taro Aso, Japan's finance minister, is a seasoned champion of the political gaffe. Among his most notorious observations was that health costs could be cut if elderly people would just hurry up and die.
3: But even by those standards, the doubts he expressed about the link between cigarettes and lung cancer has caused quite a stir.
0: Mr Aso's scepticism might just be wishful thinking. He is, after all, a lifelong smoker. But his ministry also rakes in more than 2 trillion yen, that's $18 billion a year from tobacco taxes, and owns about a third of Japan tobacco, the world's fourth largest cigarette maker.
3: The choking irony of a government that sells cigarettes and discourages people from smoking them has left a bitter taste in the mouths of many campaigners.
0: One likens it to accelerating a car with the brakes on. The debate has come to a head over a proposed ban on smoking inside most buildings, other than private residences, to protect people from passive smoking.
3: While the Health Ministry warns against such dangers, many want smoking to linger for a while longer.
0: Nearly 70% of MPs from the Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP, to which Mr Asso belongs, have joined a group that opposes the ban. Egging them on are a small but influential group of tobacco farmers – and the huge catering industry, which frets that the measure would force thousands of small bars, restaurants and izakayas, Japan's beloved and ubiquitous gastropubs, out of business.
3: A serious concern, or just smoke and mirrors?
0: Mark Levin of the University of Hawaii argues that the catering lobby's fears are groundless. Laws requiring smoke-free premises do not reduce business at most venues, and sometimes even increase it. After all, he says, most customers appreciate clean air.
3: Or so you would have thought. Flipping through now to our Middle East and Africa section, we reported on another internal kerfuffle, this time in Zambia's parliament. As an article
1: explained, a bitter political feud has spilled onto the roads, quite literally. Traffic offences rarely undermine democracy. In Zambia, however, the government's pursuit of a high-profile traffic offender has done just that. On April 8th, a convoy of cars carrying Hakainde Hichilema, the main opposition leader, did not stop on the side of the road to make way for a motorcade carrying Edgar Lungu, the president. Two days later, police raided Mr Hichilema's home and whisked him to prison. This unique case of road rage has now been sent to the country's High Court. Where Mr Hichilema and five others face charges of treason for allegedly putting the president's life at risk. Mr Hitchilema, a businessman, denies the charge, saying it is motivated by hatred and political competition. But the competition is certainly heated. In politics, as on the road, Mr Hitchilema has not been giving way to his rival. He continues to dispute the results of a presidential election held last August – Official tallies gave him 47.6% of the vote and Mr Lungu 50.4%. A court challenge from Mr Hichilema was thrown out on a technicality, but he continues to press his case. You can read more on that story in this week's issue. Time to sample some of our other podcasts
3: from the week. In Wednesday's Babbage, our science and technology show, we reported on news that Uber's CEO, Travis Kalanick, has stepped down barely a week after this paper called for something along those lines. Tom Standage, our deputy editor and tech guru, reflected on what the decision says about technology firms more broadly.
2: And I think this is something we're seeing more generally with internet companies, which was that in the old days of the internet, as it were, 10, 15 years ago, internet companies did stuff that affected things on the internet and nowadays internet companies do stuff and it affects things in the real world like cars and employment and so on and so on, aside from just what happens within the culture of the company and for just the users of that internet service. And these services are so big and affect so many people and I think that is something that has taken internet companies and their leaders a really long time to realise.
3: We headed into the skies in Tuesday's Money Talks or at least to the Paris Air Show where the world world's leading airlines have been showing off their new wares. And our correspondent Charles Reid explained that some companies might be feeling a little overstocked on planes, at least for the short term.
2: Many analysts are, in the shorter term are getting more pessimistic. Although there is very strong growth in demand for air travel and above average over the long term increases in demand for air travel at the moment, there's increasing signs of overcapacity all over the world.
3: Our weekly chat show, The Economist Asks, had as my guest the author and filmmaker Lauren Greenfield. She discussed her latest project, Generation Wealth, an exploration of people's relationship with money over three decades. And this week we asked, is it moral to be wealthy? Here's Miss Greenfield on what the west coast of America adds to the mix.
2: I think it started kind of with the influence of Hollywood for me and how that brought on kind of the cult of celebrity and image and the values of materialism. And I thought it was just kind of where I started with kids in L.A. because I came from there. But when I looked back at this 24-year journey, I saw that a lot of these trends actually start there. And I think the media that is exported from Hollywood nationally, but also now internationally, has been a driver of many of these values.
3: With a new burning question every week for us to explore, Economist Asks is available with the answers every Thursday. Try it on iTunes or your normal podcast platform. Back in the print issue, another polemic was wrangled over in our books and arts section. Our language columnist Johnson headed into tricky territory with this one. Who actually talks more, women or men?
2: It is widely thought in the West that women talk more than men. One popular science book called The Female Brain said they use three times as many words per day as men. Maybe that is why senators kept interrupting Kamala Harris, a Californian senator, during her questioning of Jeff Sessions, America's Attorney General, at a hearing on June 13th. Or why Jim Holt, hosting a panel on cosmology at a science festival in New York, repeatedly talked over Veronica Hubney, the one woman in the group.
3: Well, quite. Women will talk forever if you don't stop them in their tracks. and
2: Except that there is not a whit of evidence that they do. No study has shown women talking more. And some, like the romantic couple study, found them talking rather less.
3: So, Gabby Gabrielle and chatty Cathy aside, it seems that people simply hear women talking more.
2: And clever researchers have proved that, too. When they played scripted conversations, in which male and female speakers took perfectly balanced speaking times respondents heard the women taking 55% of the speaking time even when the male and female actors swapped scripts. Well, why is this the case? Some linguists, like Deborah Tannen of Georgetown University, argue that women and men tend to have different goals when talking. Men are more likely to seek status and exchange information, whereas women are more likely to seek connection and exchange affirmation.
3: Right, well, to make sure I don't exchange too much information, then it's time for our final taste of this week's issue. In the Letters to the Editor column, two readers wrote in concerning a recent Johnson column on the merits of the hyphen. Rick Greer from Morristown, New Jersey, praised another
1: punctuation mark. Johnson's welcome article about hyphens leads me to suggest that you follow up with a piece about commas, which your paper does not use enough of, in my opinion.
3: Well, Mr Greer and others, if the extensive use of commas was lost to you in that audio clip, comma, here's a clear-cut consideration about the hyphen itself, comma, from George Kovac in Miami, colon.
2: Johnson's ruminations over punctuation reminded me of the pedantic editor who agonised over whether to use a hyphen in anal retentive.
3: And that's the full stop to this week's tasting menu. Send us your feedback about the show or any of our other journalism by email, radio at In London, this is The Economist.